0: Yeah. So, one once more and certainly not for the final time, we are going to be given another perspective of an event that John has already had a vision of. And so tonight we are approaching the 7th trumpet, which also happens to be the 3rd woe. And that's not something that everyone agrees on, but John's Apocalypse seems to lend itself to more disagreement between believers than any other book in the first place. Anyways, and so we don't read anywhere in the text that this is the 3rd woe, but I would suggest to you that it must be, considering that the fifth and sixth trumpets were the first two woes, and because uh, Revelation eight thirteen, which introduces the three woes, associates them with the final three trumpets, the trumpet blast. So it seems clear, really, that this third woe, which... The problem with it, though, is that it lacks the details of the fifth and sixth trumpets of chapter nine, which tell, like, all the demonic activity and the spiritual warfare that, uh, that takes place, and even the physical ramifications that come about that. Those things are missing, by and large, from this third woe, but it still clearly has to be the third woe. So the seventh trumpet uh, is concerning the, the parousia, which certainly could be described as a woe for those who are the enemies of Christ. For those who don't worship the Lord Jesus. For those who must answer for their own debt of sin. And John has already seen a vision of this event with the seventh seal. And he'll see another vision of this event with the seventh bowl. And then we'll get into greater details of the wrath of God and the vindication of his people when we get to the last or the latter chapters of Revelation. But in the seventh seal, the vision was met with silence in heaven. I don't know if you remember that. But here now in the seventh trumpet, as we'll see, there's going to be singing and there's, there's, there's loud noises being expressed. So it's the same, per, same event that he's seeing, but now from a different perspective. And so what John is doing is he is being given these sequential visions that aren't describing events sequentially, but are describing events that are taking place throughout the whole time period between Jesus' first and second coming. Uh, this time period known as the Great Tribulation or the Millennium or the, the Church Age has been called many things. And then they are building up to the events that are described in the seventh seal, seventh trumpet, and seventh bowl, which we'll get to in a few chapters. And in that, we are giving way, um, these events here in the seventh trumpet and the other seventh uh, judgment sequences, they are giving way to the victory and to the eternal blessedness that Christ Jesus purchased for his, and he earned for his people His bride, the church. So let's read the text and we'll pray. We're going to begin at verse 15 and we'll read to the end of chapter 11. The Word of God says Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake, and heavy hail. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for time that you have given to us this evening to spend in your word and Holy Spirit. We pray for understanding that you would help us to have clear thoughts about uh, this vision that John was given, and that it would be an encouragement to us, that you would convict us in it, Lord, and that you would cause your will to be done in our lives through the time that we get to spend in this means of grace together this, this night. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So, again, instead of silence in heaven, which we read about in chapter 8, verse 1, like we saw at the opening of the seventh seal, we have with this seventh trumpet loud voices in heaven. Uh, better translated really as great voices in heaven, which then it alludes to the amount of being saying it. It's a great multitude of redeemed men and women that are saying these phrases or these songs or these hymns that are contained here in this last verses in chapter 11. And potentially angels are involved as well. Uh, We see them crying out in worship in Revelation 5. And at such an event like this, it would make sense that their voices are included here as well. It doesn't say that their angels are, the voices are singing technically. But if you look at the text in your Bible, it's broken down like a poem or a song or, or, or it looks like a refrain that they are uttering. And more than likely, that means that it was a song. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Some of you may be aware of Handel's Messiah. Is that something you've heard of before, Handel's Messiah? Um, it's, it's very long and if you like large orchestra ensembles, you probably like Handel's Messiah. You do tend to hear it around Christmas time, at least portions of it, and especially the portion known as the Hallelujah Chorus. N- um, not that it's an explicitly Christmas performance, but it's somewhat like of an American tradition to have it performed during this time of year that we're actually in. I've already heard it uh, once already. And probably the best known section of the piece is what I mentioned just a moment ago, that Hallelujah Chorus. And in that section, bless you, Mia. And in that section, Handel has us sing a line from Revelation 11:15, And it's very powerful. You know how music has that ability to kind of build and grow and crescendo and to engage people's emotions? Well, this is a really good example of that. It, it begins kind of soft and quiet and you hear the, the background music, the strings at this point for the for the most part, and the choir begins to say that the kingdom of this world has become. And then it, it picks up, and we get the the brass and the percussions, and they sing is become the kingdom of our Lord, and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And then there's the refrains of the Hallelujah, the overflowing expression of joy for what is true and what has just been proclaimed. And handles music, it captures the theology of the text really well, which is probably why it's been so popular with the church for hundreds of years. The kingdom of the world doesn't hold a candle to the majestic kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, who is burst on the scene in triumph and with power and royalty and reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. It's, it's gospel text put to music, really. But what does it mean that the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of God and of Christ? So to think about that, we have to go back a little bit further. What is the kingdom of the world? And note, it's not kingdoms, right? It's not plural, right? It's not different nations that are in view here specifically. And this really provides a great difficulty for those who hold to a post-millennial view of the end times. Uh, People who are post-millennial believe that the church will grow and will advance over history, over time, until one point when this whole world will be taken over by the saints and christianized and then at that point christ will come back at some point um after you know there's enough christianized nations or everybody's perfectly christianized it depends on which post-millennial you talk to but this verse shows us that that cannot be the case because eleven fifteen is dealing not with this present age but it's dealing with what happens with the events that are associated with the blowing of the seventh trumpet, which is the ushering in of eternity and the eternal age, uh, let alone the reality of the first six seals, trumpets, and bowls, which take place all throughout this whole present evil age, which imply that the whole world is never going to be Christianized vastly um, and and totally, as the postmillennial will claim. But it's the blowing of this seventh trumpet, which is symbolic, for the second advent the parousia just like with the seventh seal that explains this change of kingdom and again it's it's kingdom it's not kingdoms like we would think if postmillennialism is true like you think of you know Japan China Germany Russia all these different what we might call kingdoms it's not saying that it's saying king the kingdom of the world it's it's single so what is the kingdom then well, it's the way that the world works. The kingdom of the world is whatever rules and has power in this world. John has already had a previous a vision about a great city known as Babylon. I've spoken before about this beast that Revelation will soon provide details on. But And if you remember the, the beast, I've been trying to say that it is the satanically empowered government or state. Uh, 1 John 2.16 says that for all that is in the world and the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. That's the sort of mentality that is being captured in this kingdom of the world. That's what shapes and defines and reigns in this world that is being eclipsed by Christ's kingdom here in the seventh trumpet. It's speaking of a kingdom that is in rebellion to God. It's it's not how about or excuse me, it's not how our God created things, but it's how things are in a fallen world. Uh, the, the way that things are right now are not the way that they're supposed to be. And it's the, the kingdom of, and, and in this kingdom, Satan is said to be the prince of the world, as in John 12:31. But the good news of verse 15, this encouraging message, is that one day the fall will be completely reversed and those who overcome in Christ They will dwell with God in eternity forever, which is simply another way of saying the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of God and of his Christ. Satan and the enemies of God believe they're sovereign. And so they make a bid. They try to capture and gain his power all the time. And in a culture like ours today, which is dominated by like woke ideologies, uh, racism passed off as virtue, sexual confusion and perversion passed off as joy and happiness, it's not hard to see that that's the case, that the the world and Satan and this system is trying to usurp the authority of God. Fallen man rejects the sovereignty of God, and sadly, many Christians downplay the seriousness of God's sovereignty, his kingship, his rule, his dominion, and that has been the case since the fall but we really see it clearly when Jesus first begins to announce that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Uh, you might remember that right before Jesus' formal ministry began, in which he claimed to be the God and Messiah, and he performed miracles, and um, you know raised the dead, and gave sight to the blind, and caused the deaf to hear, and many other miracles as well. Right before um, uh, that ministry began, he was led by the Spirit out to the wilderness, You and to be tempted specifically by the devil. And Satan there tempts Jesus three times. And on the third attempt, the deceiver says this. This is Matthew 4, 8 through 9. He says, And the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to to him, All these I give you if you will fall down and worship me. That's an interesting claim to be made by this creature who has been cast down to the earth, isn't it? Like, what right does he have to make such a promise? Are they, is it truly his to give away even? And he's making this claim to none other than the eternal Son of God. Uh, the the only unbegotten one from all eternity who was not made or created. But granted, he's incarnated at this point. The Son of God took to himself a true human nature for the purpose of redeeming those who were chosen in him. And that's what makes this situation with the temptation of Jesus even all the more serious. Because Satan is at this point, once again, challenging the sovereignty of God. And he mistakenly thinks that he has an angle to exploit. He's making a bid for power to have God worship him, to have the creator to worship the creature. And it's probable that Satan thinks that he has an advantage here at this point. Because Satan has already succeeded about 4,000 years before this with the first Adam, and in doing so, he made the human race an accomplice to his rebellion. That infamous line from the serpent, Did God Really Say?, was nothing less than a challenge of God's sovereignty. Joel Beakey has said of the fall that the deadliness of Adam's sin was not that he ate a piece of forbidden fruit, but that it that he assisted Satan in defying God as the sovereign of the universe. And of course, it wasn't as if God's sovereignty was somehow overcome in the garden. Everything happens according to the good pleasure of the Lord. It all happened according to the counsel of his will, in that he had decreed for his only begotten son to receive glory and the kingdom. It wasn't going to come through Adam. That in the covenant of redemption, a people had been promised for the son, a redeemed people who would receive mercy and grace. And so God is sovereign always. It is in his nature to be so. It is inherent to his godness. And that would mean that God was sovereign between the fall of the first Adam and the final victory of the last Adam, and nothing will stand in his way. And this passage that we're reading about in Revelation 11 is speaking about that final triumph of the last Adam. The broken and fallen kingdom, which is of those who are in rebellion to God, will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. in other words, you notice that phrase is kind of interesting, right? because typically when we read the New Testament we when we read lord it 's often in reference to Jesus, but in revelation it's not the case in revelation. Lord is often speaking of God the Father, and so here it's speaking of God, the Father, and the Son Christ, in other words really it's an affirmation that this is Yahweh, the, the triune and one true God. Wherever there's a mention of father and son, it's implied as well that the spirit is to be thought of as because the spirit has even been referred to as the bond of love between the father and the son since the spirit proceeds from both the father and the son in both sealing and in bonding the church, the saints. And so the short way of describing the kingdom is to call it the reign or the dominion or sovereignty and the rule of God. And I mean, there's a lot that you can say about the kingdom, right? But if we're thinking of it in a short way, it's the, the, the church, his, his reign and dominion, sovereignty and his rule. And the fullness of the kingdom is coming. Jesus is coming with his kingdom. And he's seated on the throne even now at the right hand of the Father. But that raises another question. Is the kingdom present? Is it now or is it future? Is it here, or or are we waiting for it to arrive? Because in verse 15, it sounds like it's arriving at that point. And the answer to the question is, is it here now, or is it arriving? The answer to that question is is yes. Uh, The kingdom is both present and future. It is here, and at the same time, we can rightly affirm this verse and say that it has not yet fully arrived. I've mentioned this before, but until you understand it, um, what sound christian theologians have called the already and not yet tension you 'll have a hard time understanding the Gospels and revelation and much of the New Testament, even so let me read two verses that illustrate this. the first one is right after that third and final failed attempt of temptation of Christ in the in the um wilderness and it 's matthew four seventeen and that reads. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's like in in Luke 17, when the Pharisees ask Jesus, When will the kingdom come? And he replies, The kingdom is among you. Uh, Some translations will say that the kingdom is within you, but among you is is the better translation. With the coming and the birth of Christ Jesus, but especially in his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to glory— the kingdom has come. And so that's why Jesus would say, and he's able to say, that the kingdom is at hand. Uh, you, can, you can grab it, right? I think if like, if, um, let's say Missy called me right now and she was like, where is Adam at? And if I said, well, Adam is within arm's reach of me, she wouldn't, almost arm's reach, right? She wouldn't think that Adam is at, at back at home with her, right? She would think that Adam is right here, here with me. Um, you know that he was here at the church with me. So for the kingdom of heaven to be at hand means that Jesus was saying that since he was there, the kingdom of heaven had come. The kingdom of God had come. But here's the second verse. Very familiar to you probably. We had a few sermons on this topic recently in our um, second Lord's Day service. But it's Matthew 6.10. It's the Lord's Prayer. It's that prayer that he instructs Christians to preach as a rule and a um and as a and also just to pray the prayer itself as well. But that prayer begins and part of the beginning is your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So in another sense then, we might think, you know, Jesus in one hand taught the kingdom of heaven was at hand, it was there, it was now, but then also he was told us to pray that our king that his kingdom would come, not yet arrived. So we pray for it to come and to break in and fully hit the scene. But also, it's here already, but it's not yet complete. Or if we said, say it differently, the kingdom has been inaugurated, in which we would see that in the birth of Christ and especially in his resurrection and ascension. And then the kingdom will be consummated when Christ comes again in his final victory over his enemies and the complete salvation of his people. And that's what is being sung here in verse 15. You can kind of see this on the diagram that I put. So the diagram on the back of the outline that I put is, it explains or attempts to show through a picture this tension. When we, when we think of the, the promises of the Messiah in the Old Testament and the restoring of the kingdom to true Israel, which is Christ and those who are united to him, uh, the promises were all given in shadows and types. And so we're thinking then of the fulfillment of them, which would be substance and antitype. And the, the issue that many Jews had in the first century when they heard Jesus preach and teach and what they were expecting from their own study of the Old Testament is that they had ex- expected uh, that the transferring of the kingdom to Christ and his people would all just be one straight line. That, in other words, they would affirm that there was a present evil age, but then when the Messiah came, he would usher in the age to come. One straight flat line. But they, in thinking that, missed the mystery that was hidden in Christ, which would entail the inclusion of Gentiles into the covenants of promise. And so that's the way that Jesus would explain things is part of the reason why they didn't ultimately like him as the Messiah. Because for Jesus and the rest of the New Testament, the two ages didn't work in one straight line. What you have in reality is an overlapping in this age that leads to the age to come. When the Messiah came and he announced the inbreaking of the age, which was realized in principle, the inbreaking is called, you know, the kingdom of God, with the coming of Christ and especially his resurrection and ascension the present evil age has become, in principle, the age to come. But it's not a clean break from one to another. They overlap, right? If you look at that diagram, there's that section in the middle which has which says the already and not yet tension. It's, it, it happens in such a way that this age is growing into what it already is in principle. And when the ideal announced by Christ, which broke in during his life, becomes reality, then the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, as verse 15 says. So hopefully the diagram makes that more clear. I didn't talk about everything on it, but there's other pieces of information on there that hopefully help. And this principle is even true of our Christian experience, isn't it? Our life isn't a straight line, right? Um, you don't have like this clean break between the old man and the new man, or the non-Christian and the, and the Christian, correct? It doesn't work like that. You don't go from unconverted, selfish, prideful, lover of sin, and then, boom, all of a sudden, right away, in Christ, and now you're suddenly completely holy. and You don't have to worry about sin anymore, right? That's not the Christian life. That's not the Christian experience. What happens is that you have your life outside of Christ. You're selfish, you're prideful, you're a slave of sin, and then you're converted, and you're regenerated, you're adopted, you're justified, and all of that and every blessing that's in Christ becomes yours, and you are positionally in Christ. You are declared righteous based upon the merits of Jesus. And positionally, you have every blessing in the heavenly places just as Christ Jesus has them. But who you are in actuality is not yet all that Christ-like, is it? I mean, we still battle against the flesh. We seek to mortify it. We seek to kill it, to put it to death. And we seek to be holy all because of the reality that we are first positionally in Christ, which is why the New Testament ethics are based upon who you are in Christ. Not about who you are in your own actions and your own doings. They matter, of course, but it's of who you are in Christ because of who you are in Christ, work out your own salvation, because of who you are in Christ, make your calling and your election sure. In other words, by and because of grace, grow into the reality that Christ has made you to be positionally. Uh, when we say that you've been declared righteous, the, the point is, is that when God looks at the Christian um, and considers his life or her life and the merits of it, his obedience, his or her p- obedience, it's not their personal obedience that he sees for the Christian. For the Christian, he sees the perfect, permanent, perpetual obedience of Christ. And that is why we have salvation, is because we've been forgiven and we have every blessing that Christ has earned. But it, we are positionally that way. But in reality, sometimes we're often a hot mess. Sometimes we are often stuck in our sin and in need and in need of the means of grace. That's why we have one day to be set aside to come and gather and worship and and partake of the means of grace, the Lord's Supper, prayer, the preaching of God's word. Uh, It's to sanctify us and to continue to make us more holy until that day when either Christ comes again at the parousia or when our bodies perish and we go to be with the Lord in that way. And so let's let's go and um, so this so before we move on it's just important to understand that principle of that already not yet tension because it it has implications even for our day-to-day lives and until we really understand those sequences uh, we won't understand how the gospel works and how the gospel of in the kingdom works as well so let's go back to chapter 11 now uh, the kingdom of God is here the seventh trumpet has been blown this is what 107 affirms if you remember Back in chapter 10, verse 7, we read that in the days of the, of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. The mystery, which I mentioned earlier, that inclusion of the Gentiles to the covenant promises. Christ has already defeated the devil and paid for our sins. Christ already sits at the right hand of the Father and he is the king of this world, but In another way, he must also become the king because his reign is presently disputed and his subjects are in unchecked rebellion. That is part of his plan for the redemption of his people unto the glory of his name. But when the seventh trumpet sounds, there will be no more delay. The reign and the rule of the appointed Lord will finally be complete. It will be unquestioned and it will be unopposed. And all of God's people at that point will rejoice at the return of the king. That's symbolized there in verse um, 20, in verse 16 by those 24 elders who are falling down in worshiping. Uh, you remember we spoke of the 24 elders before. They symbolize the, the, the whole church from the Garden of Eden on to the very last person who ever gets saved. And so they rejoice and they worship. Why? What will be so good about that day? Or to put it another way, why, why will we sing and all give thanks and fall on our faces and worship God on that day when the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of, the, of our Lord and his Christ? The answer is because on that day, the Lord will take his power, the nations will no longer rage, the saints will be rewarded, the wicked will be destroyed, and God himself will be with us. That's all in verses 7 to 19. We see the same sequence of events unfold in more detail in chapters 19 and 22, but in a sentence so of a hymn or a poem, note again, note the format of those verses in your Bible. This is what the kingdom is, and this is what it will mean when it finally comes. The Lord will take his power. The nations will no longer rage. The saints will be rewarded, and the wicked will be destroyed, and God himself will be with us. We will sing and give thanks and worship on that day because the Lord will take his power. Think of the world that we live in today. Power is often seen as something to be rejected and fought against, you know, fight the power. That used to be a phrase that was popular a decade and a half ago. Those in power are blamed for all the problems of the world. And in some ways, as we understand those powers being under the demonic and evil influences that exist and how they're opposed to God, uh, we might say that it's true, but that's not the angle that the world means when it wants to fight against the powers of this world. They hate power because they don't have it. And it's the same old bid and ploy for God's sovereignty that we saw in the garden. And it's why many in the world seek to simply dismiss Christianity, but the Bible itself is not against power and authority. It is against corrupt power and abusive of authority, but it's not against those things themselves. I trust that we all desperately want the Lord God Almighty to take his power and to begin to reign here. That's why, you know, at the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes Maranatha, Lord, come quickly, because it's his desire for the Lord to take his power and to to reign and to have God's presence always here with his people. In Revelation 1.4, 1.8, and 4.8, God describes himself as the one who is and who was and who is to come. But did you notice how that phrase was a little bit different here in verse 17? In verse 17, we read who is and who was. That last part of the triad is missing. And that's interesting, right? There is no who is to come. And why? Because this vision is giving us a past tense look at the event. Because in 1116, he has come. That's what this is about. The seventh trumpet is about the coming of the Lord Jesus, he has begun to reign. The future has become the present. Uh, on that day, the Lord will have taken his great power. And you know what that means as well, right? That it's a sure thing. This day is coming, friends. And you can only be ready in Christ. So are you ready? Because look, look what it goes on to say, the nations raged. Verse 18, but your wrath came. Whose wrath, you guys? Whose wrath is it that comes? It's God, but more specifically, it's Jesus' wrath. Uh, those who want to say that Jesus is all about love and, and giving people this opportunity to, to love him back, they're, and, and they don't consider his wrath, are only giving themselves part of the picture of who Christ is. It's his wrath that comes. This is an allusion to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 prophesied um, this. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So his Christ, right? God and Christ, Father and Son. Saying, let us burn their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And then Psalm 2 goes on to say that the one enthroned in heaven laughs and he keeps them in derision. Again, friends, God is the one who is sovereign. No matter how it is that people in this world, no matter how it is that even Satan would like to try to usurp God's sovereignty, he is the one who remains sovereign throughout the whole time. Things may look like Christ is not winning only if we are looking through the eyes of the flesh, because eyes illuminated by the Spirit will not let the Christ, will not let us refuse to see that Christ is keeping his enemies in this state to mock them. Uh, derision, And so the Lord is getting the last laugh. The nations raged and his wrath has come. Now, I understand it's probably a little hard for us to understand how good this news is because of the freedom that we experience here as Americans living in the was it 21st century. Um, the freedom that we experience is pretty unique. Uh, the, then that freedom and the blessing has led even many Christians to be lax in their pursuit of the Lord, neglecting the Lord's day in many ways and the means of grace available to us even. I even saw a brother in Christ the other day on Twitter who was a post-millennial mocking the idea that we live in a present evil age because American Christians haven't really had to deal, deal with persecution according to him, at least not like persecution in times past. And so it's hard for us to, to think and get too excited about the judgment of the nations because we live in a nation that has been founded upon Christian and values and impacted by those values. Most of us don't know what it's like to live under an oppressive regime or a government that's violently hostile to Christianity or a brutal dictator. And praise God, thank God for that. I mean, that's not an easy life. That's not a life that we would wish upon anybody. But one or more of those things is true for millions of people in the world, even now. Many Christians endure in those exact conditions, even. Philip Jenkins writes, societies that know the threat of persecution, that have experienced anti-Christian violence in living memory, feel a strong affinity to the sections of the Bible that regard the secular state coldly, that present suffering as the likely lot of the Christian in this life. In such communities apocalyptic literature, especially the book of Revelation, has a near documentary relevance. In other words, you know what he means? That when they see this, it's like they see their own lives because they've been having to deal with the hardship and the suffering. And so the announcement of Christ's return like this is is a joyous thing for them, possibly perhaps more joyous than it might be for us but it shouldn't be that <laughs> because we, again, positionally who we are in Christ, even if our experience is not exactly like it is at other hi- times in history or in other Christians in the world right now, positionally who we are in Christ means that this should excite us with great um, power and energy as well too. says then in verse 18 that on that day, you know, the saints will be rewarded Take the the best, purest, happiest day of your life and multiply it by a hundred, thousand and have that same day for the rest of eternity. That's what he's trying to capture there. And that's still not even as good as the reward that we we are going to be given. Uh, Christmas is coming up. If you have little kids in your family, watch, watch them when it comes to presents. Like even just at my daughter's last birthday, Sophie, she was like squealing in excitement over gifts. But that, it's that type of pure joy that should overcome us as Christians when we think of the fact of Christ coming again and, and ushering in and consummating the kingdom. <clears throat> Perhaps uh, we could stand to be a little more greedy even for God's gifts coming to us in the age to come. We should think about it more often. It wouldn't hurt God's feelings if we lived every day in anticipation of heaven like kids living every day in in anticipation for Christmas morning. And then verse 18 finishes by speaking of, the Lord's saints will be rewarded and the destroyers will be destroyed. Good paraphrasing. Those phrases and titles for believers that are used all in that verse, they're used again in 1824 to 19.5 as well. And it's just a way of describing all of those who are united to Christ. And what that means is that the lex talionis is still true. The, the law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, is still the law for those who don't know Christ. God is still a God of justice. He still demands an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And so he will destroy those who are destroyers of the earth. It's not like some green movement here or anything like that. He's he's speaking of those who pollute the earth with their sin. And don't think that Christians aren't doing that either. We do, and we should repent when we do. But our reward that we will get, it's based on what Christ has done for us. Because the Son was crushed for us so that we wouldn't bear the wrath of God. The son took that on himself that we might have everlasting life. And then we thank the Lord God Almighty for this great mercy to us in Christ. That whole sin or that hymn, that psalm, is all a section on giving thanks to the Lord God. But don't forget that that last trumpet is the third woe. As much as the saints rejoice, the final trumpet blast is the sound of death for the wicked. Jeremiah 51:25 The Lord says behold I am against you O destroying mountain declares the Lord which destroys the whole earth I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags and make you a burnt mountain And you may remember from the start of our consideration of the seven trumpet judgments but this seventh trumpet is also made to think is also made for us to think of the battle of Jericho uh, for 6 days the, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets marched around this great walled city, Jericho, and they're blowing their trumpets with the ark of the Lord behind them. And some, the people were not allowed to raise their voices at all. But on the seventh day, after marching and blowing, marching around the city seven times and blowing the trumpets seven times, at that point, the people all shout as a great loud noise and the walls come crashing down and the enemy is defeated. In Revelation 11, the seventh trumpet sounds. The people shout in loud voices and God's enemies are destroyed. Verse 19, it's it's just like it's just the heavenly temple spoken of now. There's no such thing as the Gentile court any longer, which we talked about last week. Uh, And that's because all the people of God, now they are clothed in dazzling white with robes washed by the blood of the Lamb, bleached even by the blood of the Lamb. The Ark of the Covenant is there, again, making us think of the victory at Jericho, but especially symbolizing the reality that the people of God are now fully in the presence of God. That's what glory is about. That's, That's what heaven is about, being in the presence and living in the presence of God. That's what the church gathered here in this already not yet tension is a foretaste of even. It's why every time the church gathers, our local assemblies being a, a localized expression of the church as a whole, it's why we should make every effort to be with it. You know, what does this say about people who, who view gathering with the church like a to-do list, like just something to check off a box, or for those who miss it easily without conviction? The Lord grant us repentance and conform us to Christ in this. We will sing and give thanks and fall on our faces and worship God on that day because the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. Because on that day, the Lord will take his power. The nations will no longer rage. The saints will be rewarded. The wicked destroyed. And God himself will be with us. Chapter 11 brings to a close the long vision that began in chapter 4. Beginning of chapter 4, if you remember, John saw a door standing open in heaven, like a a trumpet speaking to him. And he saw God on the throne with lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Same thing that we read at at the end of verse 19. And the lamb who was slain was there as well. And the lamb took the scroll and he opened it, its seals one by one. And when the last seal was broken, John saw seven angels with seven trumpets, that will and they were all sounded one by one, and with the sounding of the last trumpet, John again sees a door opened in heaven, and there are once again flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunders, but also a couple other things, but this telling us that this long vision has come to an end it 's going to lead now to a different set of visions in chapter twelve that will begin then, which is a I almost wish we were having a sermon next week because it 's a good christmas type of story as well because it talks about the coming of christ in his first coming but we'll get to that then we've seen before how lightning rumblings of thunder and that those things are signs of god's presence like israel saw at sinai they symbolize the presence of god which is why they surround him who sits on the throne and that's why the seven seals ended with lightning rumbling and thunder and why the seven trumpets do as well this series though which grows each time, adding an earthquake, will now also add hail, signifying that this is the end. God has come to earth. The world has been judged. The righteous rewarded and God dwells with us. Christ is the Emmanuel, God with us. And the seventh trumpet ends with him in safety and those who are his enemies under judgment. Who are you? Which one are you? You know, may today be the day of salvation. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this time that we're able to spend. Considering the seventh trumpet, and we are so amazed and humbled by your wisdom and how it is that you weave together these events throughout history uh, to be revealing spiritual truths that are important for us to grasp and understand in this age. And we pray, Lord, that you would sanctify us, that you would work and grant salvation in the lives of everyone who is here. If there are people who aren't trusting in you, Lord, we pray that you would grant them repentance and give them new life in Christ and help us, Lord, to put um, sin to death. All for your glory's sake, Re- remind us of who we are positionally in Christ and let that be strength to us that we might pursue a greater holiness and enjoy the blessings that you give us here and now. Looking forward to the greater blessing of eternity with you, where we will be made fully whole and getting to be in your presence with you every day. Let us anticipate that with more joy and with a greater fervence already, Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Hi, guys, any uh, comments, questions? Good? Okay.